Welcome to the Denver United Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Rendell. Good morning. Welcome to Denver United. Welcome back. For those of you who are with us in person for the first time or the first time in a long time, welcome to those of you who are worshiping with us from home or wherever you find yourself this morning. So grateful to be able to be one family in Christ and hold out Jesus to this city as we do. Grateful as well on that note for, uh, for the multicultural community choir. What an amazing depiction just of Jesus' family, of the kingdom of worship, incredible worship. For it to sound like that and be focused as we sang at the end, not on the performance, but on Jesus, doesn't happen without a lot of sacrifice and a lot of work. Can we just show our appreciation to our friends in the multicultural community choir? We so appreciate you, Miss Connie. Stephen, love you guys so much. Stephen, friend of Denver United, friend to me for many years since the early days. Just so grateful for the work that God has entrusted to you guys and for the heart that Jesus uh, has put in you for his city and the leadership that you're showing to our community through the gift of music uh, and of bringing people together that you've got. Thanks to Kason and our worship team for the work you guys put in to doing that together. That kind of unity is uncommon for a reason. Right, And it's not only because people don't understand one another and so stick to like kind, but it takes work to come together. Thanks for your servant leadership. So grateful for you guys and for that rich time together in God's presence. And, you know, speaking of family, uh, on a tender family note, Marvin and Rachel, our last Sunday with you all. Uh, would you guys just stand so we can appreciate you? Rachel got a great job. As many of you know, she's been working on her graduate degree, got a great job in Boston. And so farewell to you guys told you we are not totally above like a human blockade lying down in front of your, your moving van or something like that. Love you guys and know that you'll always be family here. All right, Father, we're just going to um, pray a blessing over these guys and over those guys, then we'll pray for the word. We thank you for Marvin and Rachel, and we bless them. We ask that you would go before them and beside them and behind them, that you would prepare the way for them, Lord, the work that you have set apart for them, the mind that you've given to Rachel, Lord, and Marvin, uh, and, and, but especially, Lord, in this season, as Rachel is taking um, this job, we pray that you would cause Jesus to shine through her and through both of them, that you'd bless them with friends, a place to live and everything that you have for them. We thank you for them in the ways they've deposited and served here. And Father, we pray for Stephen and Connie and our friends in the Multicultural Community Choir. We thank you for their leadership. We thank you for their sacrificial servanthood and the way that they're modeling the kingdom with the gift of music in our city. And we bless them and ask that you would advance them into everything you've marked out for them. We turn our focused attention to your word now, Lord. None of us needs to hear words from me. We want to hear your words from you. Your word is eternal. And so would you cause it to sink deep in our hearts and transform our lives. And we give it our focused attention, and this is our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, man, love you guys. My family is in the midst of college searching once again, and so it's had me thinking back as we're walking through that time again. Um, to my own Life transition, the first year in college, for many of us, the first year out of the home was a time of great change and great transformation, a time that I thought through things for myself that I had never had the opportunity to, or it just never occurred to me to think about differently than the way my parents did. And during those years, I experienced so many changes, just in environment and context in rapid succession. I went to uh, school for civil engineering, 
obviously, because what else would you do if you want to be a pastor? And found myself in an environment of really, really smart kids from New Jersey who wanted to be like structural engineers since they were 12. And, you know, the engineered moniker, um, Minds Friends, love you guys, uh, is, 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 is earned. It is well-deserved. And so trying to make sense out of that community and not feeling myself there. I went to college with an Army ROTC scholarship. Um, I was a third-generation Army officer. That's how I paid for school. So you paid for school, by the way. So thank you. Um, you, you and your, you know, taxes. And so I paid you back by blowing things up with tanks at Fort Carson, Colorado. So you're welcome, I guess. <clears throat> but that was an environment that was also quite unfamiliar. You know, 18-year-old kids that had been subscribing to Guns and Ammo magazine since they were 12, had really short haircuts, spoken army lingo and acronyms, and owned like 14-inch knives. This was something that was totally foreign to me. I didn't fit into that culture either and felt very uncom uncomfortable and self-conscious. And then, of course, like every self-respecting college freshman, I traveled in a pack of like 25 to 30 freshmen everywhere we went, most notably on Friday nights to the fraternity parties because rush was happening, and that was a big thing, especially in the South when I went to school, joining a fraternity, and I thought that's what you're supposed to do. So I went from one to the next and found myself trying to, fit in and acting like I was having fun because everybody else was giving a convincing portrayal of somebody who was really enjoying himself in this environment. All the while, <clears throat> I think during that time, I ran the risk of maybe losing myself a little bit and who it was that God created me to be, what I enjoyed, what I valued and wanted to do with my time. So caught up going from one environment to the next, trying to be what others wanted me to be, trying to please them. And that's really what it comes down to. And that's really what life comes down to if you think about it. It's like to please or not to please. That's the question. And that's what we're talking about this morning. We're in Luke chapter six as we continue our series called the Jesus way, looking at the ways of Jesus, mining them out of these gospel texts, woven in as they are to the stories of his life. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. The Jesus way, wedded to the Jesus truth, brings about the Jesus life. That's our big idea that we're working with. We as modern evangelical Christians are much more well-versed in the Jesus truth compared with the Jesus way. But the Jesus truth done in a different way produces a very different life. The abundant life, the rich, overflowing life of God that Jesus came to bring us, it takes understanding his way and using that as a filter by which we live out Jesus' truth and experience his life. So that's what we're after. We're in Luke chapter six. Look there with me. One Sabbath day, Jesus was walking through some grain fields and his disciples broke off heads of grain, rubbed off the husks in their hands and ate the grain. But some Pharisees said, why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus replied, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. He also gave some to his companions. And Jesus added, the son of man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. They could not have liked that. And on another Sabbath, verse eight, 
A man with a deformed hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. So the man came forward. Then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them one by one and then said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. I want to offer just a couple of observations on this passage. We're looking to study the scriptures expositorily, ex out of, posit, what's posited or held out by God in the text, and to mine that for understanding the ways of Jesus. That begins, of course, by asking, what does this passage say? That's an observation, a couple of observations on this text. The first is, the story reflects Jesus's way of simplicity. The way we talked about last week, that Jesus valued, prioritized, and modeled living simply. They're walking through the grain fields and they're hungry, so they pick the grain and eat it, not giving a care it would seem to the meal ahead or where the Son of Man would rest his head. These ideas, these ways of Jesus aren't discreet, like one passage, one way, and then the next passage, he teaches another way. They're more woven together like a tapestry, and we have to draw them out. So there's the one we looked at last week. And like that, one we've talked about before, he engaged his opponents with curiosity rather than condemnation. And there was plenty to condemn. They were so clearly wrong. They were missing the forest for the trees. Absolutely. And yet Jesus, it tells us, said to his critics, I have a question for you. And this is a way of Jesus, a way we talked about last year or earlier this year, rather, when we were introducing the ministry of Alpha, how Jesus met people where they were and engaged them with questions and disarmed them. And what about the religious leaders, the Pharisees and teachers of the law? They seemed concerned Less for the people and more for the power. They watched Jesus, it tells us. They watched him closely. And they said if he heals the man's hand, they'd accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Like how messed up is that? They're watching Jesus and the man, oblivious to the fact that a man whose life has been hindered much more in that culture and economy than it would be today by his deformed hand. And Jesus does this good thing and they're watching so that they could find a reason to accuse him. Historians teach us that it was the way of the Pharisees and scribes or teachers of God's law to build a fence, so to speak, around the Torah. The Torah was the law of God, what it said, and then they would add their layer of interpretation. This is really what it means. And then the next generation of rabbis would come along and interpret the last generation's rules and add more rules. And so that fence got wider and wider until by the time Jesus sprung onto the scene, they were so bound up with religious rules that people couldn't hardly walk down the street without breaking one of them. 
and they wanted Jesus to participate in their program. Perhaps their interest was in perpetuating their power. Jesus, fine, if you're a good teacher, the people like you, great. Just conform, just do your thing our way. Don't rock the boat because our way leads to some good things, Jesus. Prestige, like good meals, seats at the head of the table, flowing robes. You could use a flowing robe, bro. That thing's ratty. Nice houses. This is what it yields us. You can participate in it too. You can have some of those things. Just would you not mess with our system? And then there's Jesus. Jesus intended to press on the religious boundaries. He didn't do this by chance. It didn't just happen that it was the Sabbath day. He knew their thoughts, the passage teaches. He said to the man then with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. The Sabbath is the point of this text. That's why these two are put together. Both of them were Jesus intentionally doing something on the Sabbath that was going to generate a response. Jesus told the man, stand in front of them. He could have healed him like after service. You know, I can imagine his disciples were like, Jesus, you know this is a thing for them. They're all about like the Sabbath and that's kind of their hot button. Could you just heal them on Monday? But Jesus made a point of doing this in front of them on the Sabbath. It says in verse 10, he looked around at his critics one by one after he had the man come and stand. So he made the biggest possible spectacle. Guy probably didn't want this attention. I'm sure it was embarrassing. Has him stand right here and then he looks at them one at a time. And then he looks at the man and he says, hold out your hand. And it was restored. At this, not just the restoring of the hand, but the whole scene, the Sabbath, the looking in the eyes, the staring them down, the making the biggest possible spectacle out of the thing. At this whole thing, this defiance, this insistence on not playing their game, this re categorical rejection of their system, of their way. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and they began to discuss what to do with them. Jesus was not unaware of what they were thinking afterward. It says he knew what they were thinking so he had the man come stand in front of him. It stands to reason that he knew what they were thinking afterward as well, which is, oh man, we gotta get rid of this guy. He is a fly in our ointment. Jesus seemed to go out of his way to do it on the Sabbath. And this is the culminating observation from this text. Clearly, obviously, Jesus didn't mind upsetting or disappointing people. We see it here and we see it again and again in the stories of his life. He didn't mind upsetting or disappointing people. He refused to be intimidated or pressured by other people's expectations of him. Jesus simply wouldn't people please. He wouldn't do it. The Pharisees wanted him to walk the line, wanted him to play by their rules. And they weren't alone in this. Others wanted him to meet their expectation as well, to do his thing their way. 
In Mark chapter one, Jesus had been up late into the night preaching and healing. And early the next morning, it teaches us before daybreak, he got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. This is that rhythm of Jesus, that Jesus pace that Pastor Daniel talked about a couple of weeks ago, another one of his ways. He went out and did his thing. And later, Simon and the others went out to find him. They're like, where is he? I don't know, the crowd's here. He's supposed to be here. He didn't do what they wanted him to do. So they went out searching for him. And you know, when you're searching for your kid and you finally find them. And even though you should be like, oh, honey, I'm so glad I found you because they got lost in the gap or something. Instead, you're like, where have you been? They kind of do that. They're like, Jesus, where have you been? And Jesus seemed like he couldn't care less that they all wanted him to be a certain place and do a certain thing. In Mark chapter three, his family gets in on the act. His mom and his brothers here, that down in Capernaum, a few villages down from Nazareth, he's like going off the rails. He's claiming to be things and he's doing things and he's drawing all this attention. And, and more than anything, the religious police are coming from Judea and like starting to look askance at him. And they're getting some pressure in their village. So they come to collect Jesus to take him away. They said, he's out of his mind. He wasn't doing his thing the way they wanted him to do it. Do you see it? John chapter seven. If you can't beat him, join him. His brothers at some point along the way, just give in. They're like, oh, well, he's not gonna stop being Jesus. So let's just, let's at least help him do this thing and do it right. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea. You're like hanging out in Galilee. It's, a, it's like he's in La Hunta and Lamar. They're like, come to Denver, bro. That's where the people are. That's where the Pepsi Center is. We'll get lights on you so people can see you. We'll get you a decent makeup artist and a, a cut and a new robe for crying out loud. That thing smells, man. And we'll, we'll make you fit for the crowds. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Jesus couldn't be bothered time after time after time to succumb to the expectations, to give in to the pressure of the people all around him and what they wanted him to do. At every turn, Jesus refused to be a people pleaser. He refused to be pressured or intimidated. He lived differentiated from the expectations of others. This is the Jesus way. What does that mean? Noted 20th century psychiatrist, Murray Bowen, who is the founder of modern family systems theory, adopted that term, differentiation, to refer to a person's capacity to define his or her own life's goals and values apart from the pressures of those around them. In his wonderful book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Peter Scazzaro puts it this way, differentiation involves the ability to hold on to who you are and who you are not. People with a high level of differentiation have their own beliefs, convictions, directions, goals, and values apart from the pressures around them. They can choose before God how they want to be without being controlled by the approval or disapproval of others. What the Pharisees did to Jesus, the world does to us 
every day tells us in so many different ways, do your thing our way. Snap to our grid. Don't show us up, man. Have your way, but would you fit in? Would you conform? It happens in so many ways that we scarcely take notice of. It happens when we embrace our identity as dual citizens, kingdom of God first, but citizens of this country or residents and participants in this culture and political process. We should we believe, and I think this is absolutely true, be the loudest, clearest, and most compelling voices in the public square. Okay, so we take this role and outsource our thinking. The world asks us, hey, if you're a political conservative, here's what you think. The pandemic, it's a political conspiracy of the far left. All this complaining about injustice, come on. We're taught, if you align this way, don't give an ear of compassion, a gesture of empathy. Listen to the guy on the cable news with the perfect hair and the good makeup. He knows what he's talking about. Just do what he says. Just think what he thinks. And if you don't, we're going to cancel you. Now, now that you're with us, if they don't, if your sister and parents don't, if the people in your church community don't, if they don't listen to the guy on the cable news channel with the perfect hair and the makeup, cancel them. If your church stops listening to the guy on the cable news, go to one where everybody outsources their thinking. Or if you align with the political left and that's where you find yourself, you're told, here's what it means to be you. It's a mother's choice to determine the future of the life of a baby. You're a lefty. That's what it means to be you. Think this way. Or maybe, maybe it's been like this. Follow the family script. Don't rock the boat. It's the way we do it. Be loyal. Everybody coddle mom in her brokenness. Everybody make room and accommodate dad and his addiction. You don't talk about abuse. You don't talk about trauma. You don't talk about your feelings. That's not our way. And so we sign on and we perpetuate it to another generation. Maybe the world tells you this. Find your value, your worth, in the way that you look. You can get there. I mean, it's going to take work. Years, not months. Dedication. Your weight. Your hair. Your tan. wrinkles, your makeup. You can look like she looks. 
Just keep going. And when you get there, if you're thin enough, if you're muscular enough, they'll accept you. You'll get the value badge that you're looking for. Or maybe it's like this. Work, yeah, overwork. Work our way. Participate, please, in the system where you work like a dog, you work like a workaholic, you work on the weekends, you hold it out like a badge of honor with your friends that you work a 70-hour week. I work an 80-hour week. Like I work a 176-hour week. <laughs> I work more than you work. Achieve. Climb that ladder. Earn more. Be successful. We'll reward you, give you more money, don't show up the system that we've all bought into. Don't look behind the curtain at our broken inner lives. Just participate. It's possible that I have offended every single person in the room. <laughs> and look, I love you guys. This is me too. I'm not preaching at you from some lofty. This is me. I live in every one of those spaces. Just like you. And I'm not looking to offend you, but I think if we don't talk about it for real, for like, oh, stay in your lane, bro. We shouldn't go there. What are we doing? What are we doing here? Like we get together and go through some religious dog and pony show. Where do we talk about it for real? Like, oh, you can't say that. That offended me. I need to leave and go find a church where everybody says everything I like or, you know, go find Jesus in the bushes or the Broncos or wherever find Jesus. I don't want to offend you, but I don't think it's working. And I think the last 19 months have showed us a, a steep, alarming decline in the fabric of relationships, in the strength of our society. And if we, the people of God, aren't willing to stand up and say it and look for a different way and by God's grace be that different way, then what hope has our city? It's easy. It's easy to get caught in this vortex and totally lose our sense of self, who we are what we value, where we're going, trying to please everyone else. And the world is more than willing to give us marching orders on every front. But it's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. It is who you are being renewed to be. That's where the hope of the world lies. My 18-year-old crisis of self came to a head halfway through the first semester of my freshman year. I'm grateful that it didn't last longer because I was wound up so tight trying to be what everyone said I should be that I was about to pop. I remember it clearly. I was at a fraternity party with a herd of freshmen, you know, and we were, there was this game. This is probably so 90s, and I'm sure there's a much cooler way that people um, compete to 
have to drink beer and get drunk. But there was this game where there was a ping pong table and like plastic cups with cheap beer and you had to try to hit the ping pong ball into the other dude's cup. And if you get it in, he's like, oh my gosh, I have to drink beer. Darn you, okay. And then he drinks beer. And then he hits it into your cup. You're like, oh, shoot, I have to drink beer too. And then you drink beer. And the whole thing, apart from the pressure of it, felt inane to me. I'm just, I'm just stuck in, in, I'm not fun in some ways because I'm too logical. I'm like, if you want to drink the dumb beer, just drink the beer. But why go through the charade of pretending you don't want to drink the beer unless he wins the ping pong point and then, oh, ah, okay, I'll, I'll drink the cheap beer out of the plastic cup. And I looked around and I thought, I thought, are you all, are you all enjoying this? Because you seem like you are. I am not enjoying this. And I am exhausted after like four and a half weeks of pretending like I'm enjoying this. I, this is dumb. And so I looked at the two friends that I, or three friends that I knew well, and I said, I'm never doing this again. And I walked out. And that was the night my life changed. I don't know if I got saved when I was a kid. I don't know if the Presbyterians are right and I was once saved and always saved. I know I wandered away. I don't know if it was because my mom was praying for me or my heart was really there. I know that I wasn't living for Jesus and I know that I was. And that's the moment I look back to where I found forgiveness and freedom. And it looked like, I, no, I didn't get this perfect. Don't get me wrong. I'm not standing here holding myself out as the paragon of, of security here. But it was the moment I recognized I can't live for all of them. I'm not going to subscribe to Guns and Ammo magazine. I don't enjoy Bowie knives. I don't wear combat boots for casual attire. Never going to. Like, I am not thinking about the composition of the concrete in the parking garage. I don't enjoy staying home on Friday night solving statically indeterminate equations. I'm not going to be like you guys. And I certainly don't enjoy pretending to not enjoy enjoying cheap beer and ping pong. I don't even know what that is. I can't follow it. It's, it's too complicated. So I'm just going to be me. I'm going to try and figure out, God, who have you made me? I remember going home and I took out the Bible that my mom had sent me off to college with, with the leather binding and the wafer thin pages and the gold embossed edges that you're scared to write in or you think like your grandmother's going to roll over in her grave and the pen's probably going to rip the page and it's got your name imprinted on it in gold, but you, you have it up on the shelf even when you're not walking with Jesus like the little heirloom, you know? It's like your shrine to, I haven't forsaken my parents' religion. You got your, that Bible. You know that Bible? You have it. <laughs> I pulled that Bible down and I opened it up and sort of vaudeville, but I was like, this is what you do. So I knelt down in my bed with that thing open and I was hoping it would open to something um, inspiring, but it, it, the middle-ish was Job. And I was like, oh, that's not a good start <laughs> to my new life. So I was like, I'm not taking that as a sign. And I was like, God, I'm exhausted trying to be, trying to jump through hoops for everybody. Would you show me who you want me to be? Who I actually am? Luke chapter three, Jesus steps out of the backwater village of Nazareth, 30 years living in obscurity, working in a woodcrafter's shop. Steps into his destiny, 
first thing he does, he goes to his cousin, John the Baptist, who's baptizing everyone, preparing the way for this mysterious Messiah to come. People don't know it's him, and he himself gets baptized, and the word of God teaches that the heavens opened, and a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son. You bring me great joy. Before Jesus did anything, he hadn't healed anyone, hadn't done a miracle, didn't suffer and die on the cross for the sins of humanity, hadn't even withstood the temptation of the devil in the wilderness yet. He hadn't done anything noteworthy. And the Father said what we sang earlier this morning with the choir. You'll never be more loved than you are right now. Apart from anything you're going to do, you bring me great joy. Who you are, your being, delights me. Friends, we don't live differentiated because we wish to. Everyone wishes to. We were able to live that way, differentiated from the expectations of everyone else when we're secure in who we are and why we're here. Insecurity is the enemy of differentiation. Jesus was resolute. He was confident in his idea, in his identity. He was confident in this one notion that he was the Father's beloved, that he had already pleased his dad. And so he lived from that identity into his purpose. And by John chapter six, he was already clear on that too. I've come down from heaven, he said, to people who were wanting to yank him in every which direction, to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. So it's off the table. I can't be bought, I can't be pressured. I'm going to do God's will. Jesus was secure in who he was and why he was there. The one led like a fountainhead to the other and everything else flowed out of that. He knew who he was. He knew what he was here to do. And he never wavered. And friends, I think some of us, we need to hear that from our heavenly father too. You, you are my daughter. You are my son. You bring me joy. You delight me. I am pleased in you. Not because of what you have done, for better or for worse. Not because of what you will do, but because of who you are. You'll never be more loved than you are right now. The word of God teaches, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It will not change. And God says, I've inscribed your name on the palms of my hands. You are ever before me. And from a place of certainty, from settling the issue, answering the question once and for all, Am I worthwhile? Does my existence matter? Do I have what it takes? 
that validation leads to a discovery sure as the day follows the night of why I am here. God said, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Now you can seek me with half your heart, no guarantees. People do that every day, hedging their bets, a little here, a little there. But if you come after me, if you believe who I say you are, you will find me. And when you find me, I'm gonna show you why you're here. I'm gonna give you the direction. I'm gonna give you the provision. I'm gonna give you the whole enchilada. I am your father. You are my child. It's why I made you. And then all the things we do don't turn into a referendum on who we are or why we're here. What a joy to live secure. Would you stand with me? Some of you, I think, are where I was, where I sometimes am, trying to find something to say you're okay. That thing's elusive, right? You reach out, you can almost grab it, and then it swings away again. You get a hold of it and it slips through your fingers. You never look good enough. You never climb the ladder high enough or fast enough. You never earn enough. You never are loyal enough to the family system. You never delegate your thinking and walk the party line true enough to wake up and feel any more valid for it. Only Jesus can do that. You were made in his image. You were made to desire that affirmation of your soul. In case you're like, oh, it's a weakness and I want to get rid of it. God, take that away. You can't take that away any more than you can take away your soul. You're made in his image. You're made to be affirmed, to affirm. You're made to love and give love. It's just that no human nor any human endeavor can ever accomplish that. Only Jesus can do that. But friends, Jesus Christ died on a cross so that we can be forgiven and free and start again. You don't have to dig yourself out of a hole. You don't have to get yourself a running start. You don't need to help yourself before God can help you. You don't need to make up for what you've done. You just have to come and surrender. Say, Jesus, man, I want to begin again. And he'll speak to you just like the father spoke to him. You are my beloved. Father, I pray for my friends. Would you meet us in this place? Every one of us, Lord, we need to hear that from you. Pray for my friends. They would hear your voice saying, daughter, son, you matter. You count. You're good. Your existence is good. Not talking about original sin, talking about I created you and called it very good. Your existence is important. I see you. I've never stopped loving you and I never will. Friends, the Word of God says simply if we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. There's no magic words, there's no formula, there's no secret code. There's simply surrender. And this morning, some of us are standing outside the door. Jesus is knocking. And if you'll open the door and invite him in, he'll make all things new. 
Would you invite him in? Just simply pray this with me. Just pray in your words. Pray your way. God, I want you to make me new. I believe that I'm your child. You're my father. Like Jesus, I need to hear before I do anything good for you. I am your daughter. I am your son. You are well pleased. You delight in me. Lord, I choose you. I confess, I confess that I've looked for affirmation and value by trying to please people and I have feared man up one side and down the other. God, I'm, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that way. It's fruitless. It's exhausting. Just confess it to him. Jesus, I want to live your way. Would you lead me in your way? Would you start right here? Make me new. Give me a fresh start, please. I believe and I choose to follow you. It's in your wonderful name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, if you made that decision for the first time or the first time in a long time, if you're choosing to follow Jesus, we'd love just to talk with you, to pray for you. It's important that you share that with someone so those seeds don't just get plucked off the path. Just our elder staff are here. We'd love to pray for you if you just come here uh, as soon as we dismiss and let us do that. If you don't have a Bible and want to start to walk with Jesus, we'd love to give you one and walk with you. How do you hear from God? How do you discern his voice? How do you know what he has for you? He's going to lead you and we're here to walk with you. Hey, thanks for coming to church today. Thank you again to our friends in the Multicultural Community Choir. We so appreciate you guys and we're honored to worship together. Connie, Stephen, we love you guys. Love all of you. Have an amazing week. We'll see you next Sunday. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com.